I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Q Commentator. My name is Nick Heath and I'm delighted you've joined me for my 15th conversation and sit down with another sporting voice that is simply one of the very best. Um, a huge thanks to all of you who are tuning in regularly. The messages via at Q Commentator on Twitter or at Nick Heath Sport are wonderful to receive. Uh, makes it all worthwhile. Not that I'm enjoying this immensely otherwise, which I am. Um, this week's star listener uh, is Gman569, uh, who heard the call for leaving a review on iTunes. Yes, that could be you as well, our star listener, uh, if you'd be kind enough to take a couple of minutes to leave a review. Oh, do go on. Please do that. Lovely. Uh, Gman says, love this pod. Fascinating insight. Great stories and laughs. Well, thank you very much. I am very pleased to hear it's hitting the spot. Um, without further ado, on to this week's guest then. Uh, from the University of Exeter to Centre Court from hosting Super Scoreboard 92, what a name, uh, to reading some, uh, frankly, amazing headlines on the 1997 New Year's Day breakfast show. Uh, Russell Fuller is BBC Five Live's tennis correspondent, and I'm thrilled to have been able to track him down for this episode. Uh, We'd not spoken before, but Russell was great company as we recorded this chat via video. Uh, We did manage to get uh, a bit of decent audio quality going as well, so hopefully uh, it's a good listen. Uh, And yeah, there are some great tales in here. That breakfast show on New Year's Day one uh, is fabulous. Listen out for that. Um, Also, the experience Russell gained doing spells of all speech radio uh, and how that can shape you into being comfortable on the mic course uh, in the uh, the current climate uh, COVID-19 still uh, on the rampage unfortunately we've seen headlines of how some of the local BBC stations are having funding cut and all this sort of thing and it I mean, Q Commentator is really uh, an area that has highlighted the role that so many of these regional stations play in developing people's careers. So, uh, you know, we we cut local radio at our peril, I think, um, because uh, it is such a good proving ground for people. But um, maybe that's a conversation for another day. Um, Of course, with his role as uh, tennis correspondent and commentator, uh, well, Russell and me, we discussed the, uh, well, the almighty skill of being able to call multi-shot rallies so effortlessly on radio Um, and uh, as my laptop clicks in the background um, as always I'm immensely grateful uh, to Russell for his time I know you'll enjoy this one Q commentator Russell Fuller great to be on the podcast 
Thank you very much for joining me. You're a chap that was schooled in Guildford, I think you were Royal Grammar School, was it? Yes, that's right. And I live not too far from there now, funnily enough. I moved away for various reasons, like we all do, for um, university. Not so much for work. I have ended up back in the same area, having spent a couple of years, a few years, in fact, in London. Uh, it feels like a completely different world, though. I think anybody who has... <laughs> lived somewhere when they were growing up and then returned to the same sort of area and I'm not talking about exactly the same area around about 10 miles away and then looks at it through adult eyes where you perhaps are bringing up small Mm. children and teenage boys it is a completely different environment to the one you remember when you were 13 or 14 and just struggling to get to school on time. Yes, I bet. Um, I was I was RGS High Wycombe, so I think we, we're meant to be RGS rivals uh, behind all this. Um, but you know, maybe we can let that, wa- that I'm water. I'm very go prepared under the to let water flow under the bridge. <laughs> um, went to university in Exeter, um, and then on to Cardiff University. Um, presented Sports World, BBC World Service Radio Saturday Sports Program. You've been the BBC's tennis correspondent since 2013. Um, around that, covered several Olympics. Worked on Football Focus, Match of the Day, the Football World Cup in South Africa. Uh, these sorts of events, um, many. Golf Open Championships. I understand from my research uh, that you began doing some some radio work whilst you were at university in Exeter. Um, so, uh, so why was that? Yes, all of that I think is correct. And the radio work at Exeter Good. was as a result, first of all, of joining University Radio Exeter. I have to say, when I went to Exeter, I didn't choose it for the radio station in particular, but I had always wanted to get into the media but I never really thought it was possible I don't think you have the confidence in yourself do you when you're a teenager that actually a job like that is reachable but of course we know Mm. it very much is and I had done it never never came up on the careers advice precisely I remember going to the careers library at school having been told to go there by my dad who was probably getting a little bit concerned that I had absolutely no idea of what I wanted to do with my life and you'd open those big lever arch files and there was one section on journalism, I think, or broadcasting. And I opened this big box file, Mm. in fact, it was. There was one article in there, and it was about somebody who had once done a few days presenting on Capital Radio. And that was the extent of any (laughs) advice they could give you on journalism. So I wasn't particularly well equipped, but I did do a week at what was County Sound Radio in Guildford, is now the Eagle I did a week shadowing various presenters and in the newsroom, and I enjoyed that. But I do remember I bunked off the final day because as a huge golf fan, the Open Golf Championship was on. So I think I feigned sickness so I could sit at home in front of the television and watch the second round of the Open Golf on the Friday. So that kind of questions my commitment to the cause. But it was always something in the Mm. back of my mind. I think I'm not unusual in saying that I remember imagining my own radio programs, TV programs in my head when I was younger. So there was something that drew me towards it, but it was really only when I got to Exeter University that I had the opportunity. It had a very, very good radio station. And I can remember having found out a bit about it at Freshers' Week. And I think it was on the first Sunday where there was a meeting for people Mm. who wanted to get involved. And I remember it very, very clearly. It was wet, as it often is in Exeter in October. I was hungover, as you often are in your first week at university, (laughs) and I very nearly did not go. It was a massive effort with a fire on in the room I was in, in the halls of residence, just to stay there, roll over and go back to sleep. But I did go in, fought my way through the rain, and I've absolutely no regrets. An amazing radio station. We were... 
in a tiny, tiny space underneath the steps of Devonshire House, one of the uh, student union buildings. But it was a thriving place with enormous number of very, very talented people who have gone on either to do great things in our industry or elsewhere. And we also had the chance during my four years in total at university to broadcast on FM, a special events license on a couple of occasions. And of course, that Mm. is a magnificent springboard to doing things professionally in future. And in my case, to actually appearing on Devon Air, the mighty Devon Air. I can remember very, very clearly getting a phone call in fact, a message from one of my housemates. I'd got back from wherever I was, and there was a message by the phone saying, please call John Ayres. Now, I was convinced it was a wind-up. The name John Ayres won't mean too oh, much really? to too many people if you're not in the West Country, but he was the sports editor at the time at Devon Air and had genuinely yeah. given me a call, having heard, I think, what I'd done on URE FM and asked whether I wanted to come and talk to them. And it led to me presenting a programme called Super Scoreboard 92, which covered the fortunes of Exeter City and Torquay United on a Saturday afternoon. And we would travel to the grounds. We'd go to Exeter. We'd go to Torquay. Normally, the schedule was quite kind to us, so that one was at home one week, one was at home the other week. And it really went from there. Wow. Yeah, Super Scoreboard 92. There's a name for a show. And a brilliant theme tune and some great ads as well on Devon Air. From Exodus in David's to Torquay Mainline and all the great tracks in between. <laughs> it's come flooding back really easily. They were it? amazing days. And again, what a fantastic way to cut your teeth. I mean, the money was appalling, even by the standards of the early 1990s. I think I was paid <laughs> £25 to put a lot of prep into and then present a three or a four hour show, which involved traveling sometimes to Torquay. But that was not a remote concern to me at all. I, I was, was going to say, casting on radio. And yeah, I was very, very raw. Of course I was. But uh, wow, what an amazing experience. Yeah. And and when you talk about, you know, hearing radio or or wanting to get into radio, that side of things interesting you. I mean, was was radio and sport on then a lot as a family growing up, that kind of thing? I was certainly listening to a lot and my brother would have been listening to a lot. My parents aren't massive sports fans. My dad was really, really into Formula One, still is. And I would watch some races with him in the way that you do tend to gravitate to what your parents like. But I was never a big, big fan. I'm certainly not a petrol head at all. And my mum liked some of the Mm. summer sports. She was quite a big tennis fan, which uh, was probably one of the reasons why I got into that sport, both as a fan and as a player as well in my teenage years in particular. Mm -hmm. But no, it wasn't one of those households where constantly sport was on. Um, We played a certain amount, but never played to anything remotely like a high level. I mean, I'm a very, very average sportsman. People often assume Mm. you're better than you are. I think they they assume you're quite good at tennis and you say, look, I really am extremely average. And they say, oh, you're just being modest. No, I'm really not. I am really very, very (laughs) average tennis player. But I enjoyed playing them and we were pretty much hooked on sport, whether it was grandstand or match of the day or sports night in those days of growing up. And uh, yeah, that's certainly brilliant, brilliant brilliant themes. themes, Absolutely right. And that instilled a love of sport in me. And it went from there. 
Yeah, there's got to be something in the in the sort of psyche of so many British people and sport because I know I know TV programs across the world often have sort of quite memorable themes or certainly through the 70s and 80s they did but there is such a relationship in this country I think between people and and the music of all of those programs the the big orchestral TV themes that that, mm. that there were on the likes of Grandstand and Sports Night Ski Sunday obviously is a is a hugely popular one with people there's probably a whole Q commentator series in that I think. Um, so Cardiff University then happened. Was that the sort of postgrad to, to jump you into into broadcast journalism? Yes, we by then had been on um, FM with a special events license a couple of times. That was either side of my year abroad in France. And by that point, I think I was thinking much more seriously about a career in broadcasting. And at the time, and it was still expensive then, and not compulsory to go down this route, but much more recommended if you could afford it to go to one of the... Uh, journalism colleges and at the time um, there was Falmouth there was Preston there was City University and there was Cardiff I think were the four that that really spring to mind and I applied for and went to Cardiff for a year and uh, again a a, a brilliant year fantastic Mm. Um, we had a great practical experience as well as doing some of the basics that you need like law for journalists Um, we were introduced to the workings of central and local government there were journalistic ethics we were told to do shorthand but very very foolishly Mm. after the first half term they decided that the broadcast students did not need to do shorthand classes it would not be compulsory for them whereas it would be for those Mm. doing the print and the magazine course now shorthand i'm pretty sure was at nine o'clock on a Tuesday morning. So you can imagine, virtually everybody in the broadcast that, group dropped it that is like a hot happening. potato, which was probably short-sighted at the time because I've remembered about one squiggle in shorthand. And I know yeah. we've got technology now, so it doesn't seem to be such an issue. You re- can record everything wherever you are very, very easily on your phone. But actually, there were a few years when I started working properly where I thought, Do you know what, it would have been really, really handy here to be able to make some notes with shorthand. But um, I've only got myself to blame. Well, yeah, it was actually when I when I looked at, at sort of the age of what twenty eight, twenty nine of, of pursuing a career in broadcasting. I actually looked at doing some courses, and and there was a lot on the sort of governance and the legal side, and then the shorthand. And I just thought, I I thought at that stage, I mean, what's that two thousand seven eight? I just thought, yeah, do you know what? I I, I don't fancy having to sit and study shorthand. I don't know that I'm going to need it. Um, and yeah, there are moments I think it would have been been very handy to have, but. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't feel like I, it's necessarily been a huge loss. No, I think we've managed to get over it, put it behind us, <laughs> yeah. not let it hold us back. Yeah, exactly. Um, what was the ambition then at, at the stage that you were you were sort of doing that course? Did you know that you wanted to be commentating at that stage? Had you Had you done much of that up to that point? I had done virtually no commentary at all. And I saw myself very much as a presenter, reporter in those days. And that's was how I spent the bulk of the early years of my career. I was in two minds about whether I wanted to do news or sport. In fact, because I'd done quite a lot of sport at Exeter, I deliberately wanted to move away from that in Cardiff and very much concentrate on the news stories for a year. And my first job after Mm. Cardiff was in news. I was the district news reporter for what was BBC Southern Counties Radio for a couple of years. Um, It had been BBC Surrey and BBC Sussex. And they've kind of gone back their separate ways now. But we had a period where we were trying to do all speech radio. Now, I don't know if anybody actually consulted the audience because you had 
a fairly elderly population <laughs> listening on the south coast of England who were very, very comfortable yeah. with their regular presenters, a little bit of music, few competitions, you know, that sort of unbeatable Lovely. local radio mix. And you were trying to feel, yeah, you yeah. were trying to provide them with a service that would also be relevant for people who were inside the M twenty five in places like Chertsey. Very, very different audience. And yeah. I mean it was a great time for us to be there because I had this diesel dustbin as we called it so I could drive around Rygate and Crawley which was my patch and I could broadcast from the back of this car and we were on air from I think 5am until 1am 20 hours a day seven days a week all talk radio wow too much talk radio well almost certainly I think the jury is probably (laughs) long since retired and returned to give its verdict but you can imagine for us with all that airtime to fill you're sent somewhere it's an amazing yeah you haven't got a clue what's going on you haven't had a time to to speak to people which is often the curse of modern day broadcasting anyway and there you are you're on and it's not a case of being on for two sharp answers it's probably a case of taking it up to the hour and maybe beyond and keep talking for the next 10 or 15 minutes yeah how fun. I mean, but but an amazing learning curve, ultimately. Um, and, and how did you uh, enjoy sort of finding your voice at that stage as a reporter before before perhaps we get to the commentary? Because, I mean, you know, I can look back at stuff that I did only 10 years ago and, and I can I can hear of different style. I'm, I'm not as relaxed as I would be now. So were you were you finding it easy to to be, you know, the, the, the Russell Fuller that was reporting then? Or was he was he sterner? Was he, you know, more animated? Hmm. I mean, maybe I was sterner in that I think that's something that comes with age and experience, isn't it? The warmth. I think I was always very comfortable, Mm. always been very comfortable on air, whether it was presenting or reporting. I never feel like I'm going to run out of words. And I like to think that I'm talking to people like I would be talking to them if I wasn't on the radio or television at that time. But yeah, if I listen back to stuff Mm. now and I have one or two old cassettes somewhere that I discovered in the loft not too long ago, you've got to go the next step, haven't you, to actually be able to listen to it. You know, I'm sure I would listen to some of that. And I don't think I would think I'm completely unrecognizable, but there's lots of things that we'd look at and think, wow, did I really say that? Did I really sound like that? But you develop in the role. It was a great chance in the in the Rygate and Crawley patch to develop lots of contacts. I only did that job actually for six months before being asked to present at weekends. But it was just an idea of what it was like to build up contacts in your patch, which I'm sure did help to some extent when I took on the tennis correspondent's job. But the next opportunity was actually to present a Saturday and a Sunday afternoon program, which was my big break, really. And I can remember very clearly Mark Thomas, who was the station manager at the time. I was very lucky because he took a huge interest in my career. And uh, he said he wanted to talk to me. And we met at a fish restaurant halfway in between Rygate and Guildford. I think, it, yes, it was in... Um, oh, the glamour. It was Well, it felt very glamorous at the time, I can tell you, Nick. <laughs> it would have been in Gomshall. And this was me at the age of, what, 25, 26, uh, meeting the big boss. Yeah. And he told me that he wanted me to come off the Rygate and Crawley beat and like me to start presenting these programs. And my initial reaction was I don't want to do it. It wasn't that I didn't feel ready to present, but I was really enjoying what I was doing. And I felt six months in, I, I just hadn't done the job properly. Yeah, but okay. I think I soon realized if the boss is asking and allowing you to present, I'd be stupid not to. Yeah. But these two shows, they were not sports programs, even though they were taking place on a Saturday and a Sunday afternoon, because it was quite a sport-averse station at the time, despite having Brighton and Hove Albion in the patch. Right. It was to present on Saturday something called the All Talk Chart Show. 
Ooh. which actually wasn't a bad show. The concepts that have been developed perhaps in other areas. So you've, you've got the top 10 films, the top 10 recipes of the week, whatever it might be. And you could probably just sustain that in an all-talk format God, for God four for, hours. God forbid it's not music. <laughs> there was no music. Music was banned. Sunday, on the other hand, a program called Southern Counties Heritage. Ooh. Now, I probably owe a lot to that program because there was nothing in it at all. And it was often in subject matters that did not interest me. Again, four hours, Sunday afternoon, a maximum of four guests per hour. And often the next guest didn't turn up and you had to keep going. Wow. And it was a range of stuff. Some of it genuinely very interesting, I'm sure, but some of it very, very thin. So you would be quite possibly speaking to somebody about their thimble collection. Yeah. And that was the time where after 15 minutes, you really had had enough. But quite often you had to keep going for double that length of time. You might be working off one very, very thin uh, press release about yeah. some <laughs> exhibition that's opening at some uh, museum in the Sussex countryside. Yeah. So I, I think it was quite desperate at times to listen to. But again, wow. Wow. What an experience because you know and, and you saw the funny side of it. And I think then I could see the challenging side of it. Mm. And we might have laughed at the program behind the scenes. But for me, I knew I had to keep those needles wagging for 15, 20 minutes, however long it was. Yeah. And I think that teaches you that you should never, ever, ever be frightened in a live situation, even though here you've probably got a guest who you have little in common with may not have a great deal to say on a subject that's not particularly interesting to too many yeah, people maybe so nervous they don't know how to speak on a radio or you, you've got to really get you've got to really get out of them what isn't you, worth you getting have. out <laughs> maybe maybe overawed by being invited on to southern counties heritage well, which of course was one of the uh, leading programs of its time <laughs> absolutely i think uh, maybe listeners like me are getting a sense of uh, of russell's dry sense of humor as we go through this conversation <laughs> um that's brilliant. I mean, you know, Steve Coogan's got a lot to answer for, but it just it smacks so much of of, of partridgeism, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it did. But then, in some ways, we were a little bit removed from that because we were doing something at the same time that nobody else was doing, and that developed over my two years at the station. I ended up presenting Drive Time for a year, and it ended with a program called uh, not a program called Drive, obviously. But the format was I was on from five until nine, and by then we had an hour of sport between eight and nine. But the format was that at five o'clock, and this is the same for the breakfast show, there'd be a minute of the day's top news, top sport, main travel stories, and weather headlines. And that would take you to about four minutes past five, at which time you'd do two of the day's more stories in a bit more detail until you got to ten past five, when it was more of the day's news, sport, travel and weather. Two more stories, twenty past five, the rest of the day's news, sport, travel and weather. Two more stories, and it was only half past five, and you had three and a half hours to go. So again, I mean, if you're in your car for half an hour, that was the theory, you got the entire day's news in 30 minutes, and maybe it were for people on their way home. Yeah. But a very repetitive programme to put together yeah. um, for the well, producer for, and also, and also how, for the presenter. Till nine o'clock. Wow. Yeah, until nine o'clock. So at least an hour of sport between uh, eight and nine. And I think we were allowed to repeat much of the first hour between seven and eight because we realized it was a very, very different audience. Mm. But again, it just threw up so many wonderful moments. I, I, I loved that two years. For me, it was a brilliant experience and so much fun, maybe at times at the detriment of the audience. But we, we, we had a lot of laughs along the way. And um, the one story I always remember and, and, and tell whenever I can is the New Year's Day breakfast show in what would have been probably 1997, 1st of January. 
And I'd been asked to do it as a drive time presenter. And you feel, yeah, absolutely, I, I must do that, even though it's New Year's Day. Mm. And uh, me and my producer got in for a show that was perhaps starting an hour later. That was the only leeway they gave us at six o'clock. We we're in the building about half past four. And the same format applied. No music allowed. You still had this same format of news, sport, travel and this weather is, every this single is in the 10 evening, minutes. No, it's a New Year's Day breakfast show. Oh, sorry, so breakfast, 1st of sorry, January, yes, 1997. Yeah. Nothing around. Um, the producer gets in and he said, a little bit of a problem. The person who's been setting stuff up for Christmas and New Year seems to have forgotten about the 1st of January. Oh, they've, they've, left, wow. they've left nothing. So he said, but don't worry, not a problem at all. What I'll do is I'll just listen to the Today programme and I'll raid everything on there and we'll just turn it around and make it chatty. Great. The Today programme wasn't on the air on that particular day. Of course. So he ends up... As most sensible people would decide, 1st of January, probably not worth it, particularly back in 1997. Can't remember what day of the week it was. Mm. So he said, well, I've really got little option other than to um, listen back to the World Service, which, of course, has been broadcasting 24 hours a day. And as a result, I came on air that morning to a very, very small audience in BBC Southern Counties Radio saying, good morning, it's six o'clock on the 1st of January 1997. And if you're just waking up in Surrey, Sussex and North East Hampshire, our main story this morning is the end of civil war in Guatemala. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) and I played it far too straight, Nick. That was the thing. Looking back now, I remember I did. I've not heard it. that program recording probably doesn't Local exist. Local radio, but actually, that's fantastic. We, we were laughing behind the scenes, but I played it far too straight on the air because yeah. I didn't have the confidence at that time. And, and perhaps rightly so as a guy who was um, standing in on breakfast in my mid-twenties. But yeah. I mean, the yeah, joy, I would, the have, joy done could have, been I would have done it slightly differently now. Couldn't it? <laughs> the, to, to, to lift the curtain on it for your audience would have been half the fun to have, I guess, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's amazing. Um, so uh, so tell me then, the jump to, to the moment that sort of commentating appeared on, on the horizon and then, and then became a reality how how did that sort of come to fruition well it was still quite a long i'm I'm jumping a bit a a bit yeah 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 well it was quite a long time away still because i then joined uh the sports department in uh 1997 august the 1st 1997 one of those days that sticks in my mind and i was working across the world service and five live and i was reading bulletins and I was doing some presenting on Five Live. We used to have the, the Monday match, the Tuesday match, programs like that. You had your day of the week. And I was traveling more and more for the World Service, did the Sydney Olympics in 2000, mm-hmm. and was then asked to present their Sports World program, which I did for 10 years through until about uh, in fact, 2012, the London Olympics. And up until around about probably 2003, 2004, I'd never done any real commentary at all other than some golf commentary Mm. that's that's where i started so that was the first thing and that was for the world service and then for five live sometimes from media centers at uh, an overseas major championship for example um, and then on course at the open championship and the Ryder cup and i that suited my style i Mm. think that that whispering style lots and lots of gaps between action having to fill the time talking to your summarizer and a few years after that, I started to do some tennis, and I can remember very well my first really big match I was given. And I perhaps wasn't quite ready for it, but the editor at the time said, right, go on, you go for it. And I think it was a bit scratchy for the first 10 or 15 minutes, but I, I warmed up as I went through it. It was centre court, Wimbledon, round of 16 day, fourth round day on that second Monday. Wow. Roger Federer against Juan Carlos Ferrero. I think with Pat Cash and Froome McMillan as my summarizers. Wow. And it was a real buzz. The heart was beating really, really fast because you knew this was a big commentary match late in the day, big audience, people driving home. And I absolutely loved it. And it was a huge, huge buzz. And it was from there, I think, that I realized I could do it. 
and I would like to do more commentary. But actually, I never wanted to go anywhere near football or rugby commentating. It just it just wouldn't be me. I would not be very good at it. And people say, again, you, of course you would. If you can do tennis, which is so fast, you could do rugby or football. I said, no, I don't think I can. I mean, you can attest to this, perhaps. It's a very different skill. All that player identification. Personally, it's not for me. So there weren't too many other opportunities to do commentary. And I was very, very happy as a presenter. And it was really probably only within the last 10 or 12 years that I thought, actually, you know, maybe I would like to do more commentary on a regular basis. Mm. No, that's really interesting. And and to have started on the golf side, which, you know, we're chatting to uh, to the likes of John Murray and and he was a big fan of TMS. And so that informed a lot of his commentary style and, and he's covered, you know, covered the golf as well. And and you you understand that the conversational nature is is part of that scene as well. And, and that if you're talking about, all of the time you spent on the radio previously it's it's an understandable education and 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 a lot of experience that goes into that to to move from that to tennis is is a pretty remarkable leap given that you know i i think in terms of style um the the pace of tennis which you've mentioned um compared to perhaps any of the conversations i've had so far on on q commentator i think it's it's one of the more unique like yes you've got you've got horse racing which which with due respect to john hunt is you know can be a gabble and there's a lot of information that you've got to get across on a sort of linear sense um he's far more eloquent than a gabble i should say uh but uh but you know i I, I've sat and you know I'm I'm very keen to to do more in tennis and uh, and I I sort of I look at it at times and will watch the game and I will try and call as best I can positionally on court where a player's going what they're doing and and then I'll stick five live on or sports extra and hear you doing it and go yeah no I'm still not quite there. <laughs> It does. It does take some practice, and I, like probably everybody else, did start at home uh, trying to do it myself. But of course, it's a lot more difficult in that situation because you haven't got any crowd noise, you haven't got a summarizer alongside you. Mm. But it, 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 some people just feel it's 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 not for them. I'm sure it absolutely could be for you if you if you did more of it. In terms of keeping up with the play and describing the action, there's not there's a limit to the number of different shots you have to describe. So it's not a question of being lacking technical terms or anything like that. It's more a case of perhaps describing the same shot in a slightly different way. Yeah, okay. But when it is really happening very fast and you've got to a crucial point where you might be describing virtually every point in the rally, mm. then actually all you do have time for in a situation like that is Federer backhand, Djokovic cross-court forehand. If you are going to try and keep up with the pace of play, which I would not recommend all of the time because it would just be too much for the audience. And yeah. You probably always find you were slightly behind, but there are certain points in a match to try and change the pace of the commentary where you do try and keep up with every single shot. And then obviously your description has to be that much more restricted. At other times, yes, you are describing at least every other shot, I would say. You try to give people an idea of who has the balance of power in the rally. And you've got to be ready for the rally to break down because there's nothing worse than the audience hearing a big ooh or a big cheer from the crowd and the commentator is still a couple of shots behind. Yeah. It's the worst possible thing in any radio commentary, but probably particularly with a sport like tennis. Yeah, so I mean, how many times will that happen? How 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 easy is it to, I don't know, not make that mistake because it's a sort of an organic thing? But you you must have moments when you're so oh what an incredible back and then there's a thing as before you've even finished it and you've 
you've got to yeah. almost depart that as quickly as possible and go, well, actually, he's fallen over or actually, you know. Yeah, you kick yourself sometimes or you slap yourself on the thigh, whatever you're able to do beneath the table, because, you know, occasionally your concentration has dipped a little bit. You've allowed yourself to get sidetracked with something your summarizer was saying. And that's actually fine a lot of the time. But it's only when it really, really matters. If it's the final set of a match or you're in a Grand Slam final where you really think, come on, this is going to drive people mad. You've, you've got to keep up with the play. And I think it's it's a pretty iron discipline now. I mean, it's it's ingrained. Mm. I, I, I know that I need to do that. I know that is an absolutely essential part of the art of tennis commentary. But of course, there are times where you think, oh, I've been far too wordy. That might have been a lovely description of the uh, backhand down the line in the previous rally. But actually, it wasn't the moment for it, Russell, because now the rally is broken down when I wasn't expecting it to. And I know that I might only be half a second behind, but I know I'm slightly behind. And it just focuses the mind. I think we're all a bit like that. When you know you've perhaps made a bit of a mistake or done something that wasn't quite as good as you would like it to be in the middle of a commentary, then it reminds you to get your act together. And also, you need to forget about it, don't you? Well, that's... We, we, yeah. We, you put it behind you. That's the that's big just skill, like One moment, and that comes with experience, because I can remember when the early days of presenting on Five Live, where I would listen well, not even listen back to something, I would be aware, I'd be feeling very self-conscious, not particularly relaxed and comfortable because I knew that I had a lot to learn. And if I felt the program had got off to a bad start, it would play on my mind for the rest of the show. Yeah. Whereas you soon realise you can't afford to do that. Yeah, and it used you get to better at just putting it out of your mind because you back yourself to come back strongly. Yeah. The first 1% might not have been great, but there's 99% of the commentary still to play for. Well, that's it. You know, I, I, I think I've mentioned a couple of times I'd have that moment if there was a moment of mis-ID in a game and, and, you know, suddenly the back of my neck would go all hot and I'd spend the next five, six seconds thinking about it so intently that even at times I'd have completely dried up and then I'm like well hold on a minute you might have made a mistake but you've actually then allowed it to make the next five seconds of of broadcasting even worse so actually get rid of it and move on and concentrate on describing the next bit of action yeah Um, yeah yeah exactly well put I've been there many many times yeah it is a key skill to to be able to develop and I guess you know journalistically speaking which you know people like Miles Harrison talk about commentary being instant journalism and and i guess it is important as you say to make that switch from shot description which is presenting the image in the listener's listener's mind's eye but actually telling the story of what is happening and and like you say whether it's the the balance of power or or how someone is coping with what you may suspect is a is a developing injury those kind of things are, are just as important and actually to, to break off from going shot by shot if, if telling the story during each rally is, is more interesting, is, is important to remember. Yeah, it, it is, I suppose, this might sound a bit pompous, but it is the very, very first draft of history, isn't it, to uh, continue your thread there. So all of that is very, very important. It's um, crucial to try and recapture the image that you have in front of you as much as is possible. Difficult during a rally, but the other thing that we have in our favour in tennis is that there's meant to be no more than 25 seconds between points these days, and, and that's fairly strictly police. But actually, 25 seconds is quite a long period of time, particularly if the previous rally was just an ace yeah. or a service winner. And in a long match, particularly on clay, particularly with Rafa Nadal on court, <laughs> although there are other slow play culprits, um, you could be getting into a fourth or a fifth hour, and it throws up lots of different challenges. So there's plenty of other stuff 
yeah. whether it's sights or sounds or smells, whatever it might be, to bring in perhaps when that point is, is not. Be- because the ball is in play in a tennis match, I would think on average for about, what, 20% of the time? Mm. Given the time they take between points. Yeah. Maybe it's a bit higher than that, but the average rally is probably going to be about three shots. Yeah. No, yeah, point taken. Um, so, so from the golf towards the tennis, then, in, in, in your experience of doing both, how would you describe your voice? How do you think you come across? What's, what do you think you sound like? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I think I sound like myself. I think it's really difficult for, for me to, to judge. I suppose I, I've got a fairly dry sense of humour, which at times, I think when people don't know me so well, they they don't realize perhaps I'm being sarcastic or dry. So I think you probably have to hope that the audience picks up on that. And maybe I should have made it more obvious in, in years gone by. I mean, I, I, can get, I can get very excited at times. I think it's all about entertainment. I've always felt that. So there's time for, 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 for loads and loads of enthusiasm. But I'm, I'm certainly not as excitable as some commentators as a person i'm fairly level-headed i don't tend to have big mood swings Mm -hmm. and i hope that doesn't mean the commentary is one paced or or one tone at all but i'm yeah i'm not an extrovert so i I mean i'm quite i'm not shy Mm. but certainly in early life i was quite self-conscious and not particularly confident in myself i find normally that actually when you're on the radio you don't worry about that you're not thinking about the numbers of people listening are you you are just uh, doing the job there and you feel very comfortable in that working environment but uh yeah i don't know if any of that makes sense no it or, does or, or I think, whether that i think that's a that's, a, that's is, a lovely is how answer. i sound to you but that's probably the way i see it no, well, it's, I think, I, you know, that's why I find that an interesting question to ask because, you know, from some people, it's very much a tonal thing. From others, it's it's the atmosphere it, for, for, you know, as you've described there, it's it's almost it, it's reflecting personality. And, and that's important, too, I think. And and as you as you open with, you know, it, it's you. Um, and, and that's that's key, because I think it's a good lesson for up and coming commentators to to know that that, that is the most important part of it really um is 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 having having the faith in in being yourself hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little so naturally when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you that's right we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Um, in terms of, you know, it, it certainly isn't on one tone. Um, is it? Is it something you're conscious of? Obviously, we all know that screaming and shouting doesn't sound good. Um, we've got to hit the right notes, but also be aware that whether it's from a from from the back of the green on a, on a on a golf course from or, or whether you're center court in a Wimbledon final there are going to be these different notes these different volumes these light and shade um how conscious are you of the musicality and, and a need to at times if if things have have started to slow or get into a rut switch it up yeah that's it isn't it sometimes you have to artificially switch it up not to ridiculous levels but there are times where a match is struggling there's not much atmosphere because there's really nobody watching on court Um, and we may have that issue when uh, we describe matches behind closed doors in the weeks and months to come Mm. I think generally tennis and golf as well is one of those sports that naturally affords you to use the entire range because there are times early in a tennis match where even in a grand slam final where there'll be times where you are actually speaking quite softly even though you've got the glass in front of you in the commentary box you'll be very chatty because you know that there are going to be points perhaps later in this particular rally or certainly later in that set or definitely later in that match where it's a lot more exciting the crowd are making a noise and everything is on the line so you know you will go from from one extreme to the other and even in the middle of all the drama when we're approaching perhaps the 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 climax to the championships and somebody is serving for the title. I love the contrast even then because you could have an 18 shot rally and you're getting incredibly exciting and hyperventilating. So is your summarizer. The crowd are going absolutely crazy for it as well. And then suddenly, and most tennis crowds are very respectful, you've got that period as the crowd settles down and the player prepares to serve where you've yeah. got maybe five to 10 seconds of almost silence it varies somewhere like new york on arthur ash where they tend to make a noise throughout but there Mm. as a commentator having been at maximum decibels just a few seconds earlier you are suddenly very very calm almost a loud whisper you're spacing your words out because i think that helps capture the tension of the moment yeah i think it does that's very very well illustrated are you conscious in any of those moments where it is uh on on the one hand you you're conscious that it's nice for a listener to be able to hear that moment of stillness but where on the other hand you're doing radio and you want to make sure that mrs miggins isn't halfway across her living room to to smack her wireless going i can't hear anything it seems to have it seems to have broken yeah well i'm afraid mrs miggins will just have to <laughs> tune out somewhere else because that is such a crucial part of what we do and particularly at the Grand Slams and particularly at Wimbledon where we have the best microphones actually on the court that even when it's quiet there is still that sound yes there's always a couple of coughs in the crowd there's a sound of the player bouncing the ball and because you know that's being magnified properly then I very much do want uh, the crowd to do their job and then when they're going crazy because they're so excited at what they've seen that works brilliantly as well you can describe what's happened and then actually there are times where you perhaps have to switch all the microphones off in the commentary box make sure you switch your summarizers microphone off as well (laughs) so that we know that actually we want to hear we want to hear 10 seconds which is quite a long time in radio without speech isn't it we want to hear 10 seconds of the crowd and then even the crowd dying down and wait for the umpire to come in and i think that's particularly atmospheric at wimbledon 
where the shouts are dying down and the umpire comes in with the score and the shouts increase again and then things settle down. And you may not have spoken for 10, 15 seconds and then maybe it's just a case of reminding people championship point, Rafa Nadal for a 13th French Open title or whatever it might be. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. That's very nicely described because, yeah, you have all those notes that, all those, all those little little sort of boxes to tick almost for the audience to to get that full experience, don't you? Um, have you had moments where where the voices has let you down? Yes, and particularly early in my commentary career in radio, I can remember feeling very self conscious about it, which is why I thought. I was never really going to be a commentator. I would still say I probably got more of a presenter's voice than a than a natural commentator's voice. But then I I say that knowing that there's such a wide range of commentary as we've been discussing. But perhaps what yeah, people I, might I think, think of a commentator. It. I think you found it. <laughs> yeah, it's but, but, but again, but because it's tennis, I think, or golf, I think for football and cricket, I, I'm not sure the voice would have resonated in the same way. I certainly don't have a deep, powerful voice like like. Not all, but many um, football and, and rugby commentators might have. And yeah, there were times where I just was very, very squeaky. And this was long after my voice had broken, believe me. Mm. We're talking probably in my early 30s. And I just didn't have the range. And I, and I, and I couldn't control it. And, it. and it wasn't nearly, nearly good enough. But just by working on it then you get to the point where you're fine with it. And I, my voice will be higher than some at the end of matches, but that's my natural range. So I don't have a problem with that, but I absolutely did in the earlier days. And I can remember, I don't know if it was Tim Hemmons' final match at, at Wimbledon, but certainly one of his last matches, I was commentating on it for the World Service. And I really can't remember the details now, but I, he came back and I think he ultimately must have lost the match. And... You don't need to beat yourself up with the details. We we won't remember, but carry on. The details don't matter, but to me, the fact that my voice just went. Right. And I listened back to the commentary afterwards, and it was just, it wasn't good enough. Mm. And that probably discouraged me in the short term. When you and say went point, in what way? Still, you, 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 well, it just, you didn't it have just much went, left? Or? There was nothing left. It right. was just air or a squeak at the crucial moment. And it was far too high. And again, a, a range, a variety of ranges is great across the board. We need voices from all walks of life. But this was not good enough to be able to sustain commentary on a long-term basis at that level. But it wasn't that I went away and, and, and worked on it morning, noon and night. But you just learn that you just have to you know, breathe from the diaphragm more and you just practice more and more and more and you know how far you've got to go and you therefore pace yourself so you're not uh, giving too much 10 or 15 minutes from the end of the match. I wasn't too worried about it at that stage because I didn't really think it was what I wanted to do. I was yeah. very much the presenter on the World Service and Five Live. But yeah, if you'd asked me back in... 2004 2005 I think whether I could envisage doing the job I'm doing now I would have said no I, d I don't see that at all yeah that's interesting um I well I certainly think you have made it your own and, and I think you have a great commentary voice I mean of of of, of the well you mentioned the diaphragm and that's something that I know that I sort of studied through voice classes at drama school I mean is there is there any of that technique stuff that you've you've had to gen up on not really. I've read, I've read the articles at various times. I still don't think I do it correctly. Uh, it's about breathing in the right place as well, and as I say, about making sure you've, you you leave yourself somewhere to go later in the commentary. And so I don't think it's been a particularly scientific approach. Mm. It's just practice. And I got to a point where I felt more comfortable, and I was doing more commentaries for uh, Five Live at Wimbledon, and I was doing one or two other events as well. Although my tennis year 
pretty much involved a week, sometimes two at the French Open, two or three days at Queen's Club, the first 10 days of Wimbledon. And that was it. Mm. Maybe a couple of days at the ATP finals. But that would have been it until the following May. But I was being used to do the odd US Open and one Australian Open. And it just comes together. And I can remember thinking probably about three or four years before Jonathan Overend decided he wanted to do something else with his life that actually that job does appeal. Yeah. But that would have been roughly 2008, 2009. Certainly not before that. Mm. Yeah, okay. Um, what about the preparation then? Um, how much time will you put in? Uh, I guess, you know, you, you will get a bit of a heads up in in Grand Slams and, and tennis tournaments that you've got maybe a day or two, uh, or sometimes I guess only a day or even half a day from a player that's gone through to know who, who they're facing the next day. How do you go about that? What sort of length of time does it take you? Yeah, I'm quite, th- I'm quite thorough with the prep, Nick. I like to be over-prepared, even though I will often not use a lot of that material. I'm, I'm not somebody who wants to throw in stats all the time, but I think particularly in a tennis match that could last four or five hours with that quite long period between points, as we discussed, then you want to have you know, plenty up your sleeve. And actually, probably a lot of it does come out over the course of the match, but you shouldn't force it out. Yeah. So using the stats that are provided to us for the big matches by the ATP, the WTA, the ITF, the various governing bodies, and obviously your own bits of research, I will take my notebook and I will actually write it out still um, by hand. And I'll just have a player down one column, a player down the other column. And if it's in the early stages of a Grand Slam match, then I, there will not be prodigious notes but when it comes to the really really big matches the latter stage of the slams the final where there's the historical element to factor in as well then with quite small writing i will very comfortably fill a page of a4 one player one column the other player the other column and then often another page of notes about the trophy presentation and some previous historical meetings between them because i just feel that you you it gives you confidence going to the commentary yeah i think some people will, particularly in the early stages of Grand Slam, some of my colleagues, we're, we're all different actually in the BBC radio commentary team, some actually don't like to do it that way. Mm. They, they might, they'll have the stats, perhaps a hard copy of the stats that they've got from the media centre, and they will have that open at the relevant page and they'll highlight a few things, and they'll be very, very comfortable doing it like that. And I don't think you notice any difference in the end product at all. I just think it's always about what makes that individual person happy. Yes. No, I would definitely be more of your school than uh, than the other, um, just because I think it it gives you that confidence. It's the safety blanket at the end of the day to be able to fill, mm. fill those moments, isn't it? Um, and... And I guess that doesn't change across to the other sports that you've covered. I mean, commentating on golf, that sort of thing. Although, I guess in that scenario, there's there's perhaps it, would you would you say there's less less opportunity to be talking at length about someone's history in various meetings because there's more about the actual detail of of where they're at on a course and and what the, what shot they're going to take and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I think there's so much colour you can throw in, and with golf you often perhaps haven't been with this particular pairing or three ball for 15, 20 minutes, maybe longer if nothing much has happened. So there is a certain amount to, to bring up to the, the, to bring the the listeners up to speed with. And again, walking along the fairway with a former player, not just there, input into how this particular guy is playing but how the playing partners are going and you know what you've seen in the crowd there's actually loads and loads of material there mm. with golf we would often get moved from one three ball to another 
uh, at the Open Championship because your three ball had gone off the boil. They weren't really doing anything. No birdies, not a very exciting listen and not in contention anymore. But meanwhile, if you go back four holes, Russell, um, so-and-so is just ripping up the course. So you go there. Yeah. And it's great if that run continues. But of course, you've got no notes about them at all. Yeah. Other than perhaps the media guide that I can remember being produced, which had perhaps one page biography on everybody and the producer will be telling you in your ear right here are their scores three four three two three and you're desperately scribbling all this stuff down (laughs) Uh, so you could you can you can absolutely do it without preparation and at times you have to yeah because you've you've just got no idea what you're going to end up commentating on although as you say with tennis there are times where players pull out particularly before a first round match or a very late change of opponent a lucky loser comes into the draw so you have to um, improvise or or hastily scribble some notes but actually normally we've got a pretty good idea of what's coming up on that particular day Mm. and you mentioned uh you know summarizers co-commentators uh switching back to tennis i mean that's that's an area where we've enjoyed various personalities in the years gone by there's there'll, there'll always be arguments over whether there are personalities now or not and and you've got people like patrick muratoglu obviously creating ultimate tennis to to try and bring more more personalities to the fore but um People will will think I I imagine or certainly I do of the likes of Boris Becker, the likes of John McEnroe, these these sort of strong characters. Um, does it does it take a sort of an interesting approach to be able to accommodate these sort of characters? How much how much do do, do some of the ex players come in and and respect your role as a lead commentator um, as opposed to perhaps maybe some of them thinking that it should be the other way around. I would say in radio they are fantastic and that's not to say they aren't in television but I don't have that same experience of working in the BBC television commentary box at Wimbledon where the role between the lead commentator and the colour is a bit more blurred. I think with the radio I don't think there's too many former players who particularly of the nature of the ones you mentioned who who want to do that Mm. so they are respectful of of what you do and vice versa. I can remember the first time I did a commentary with Martina Navratilova because I'd only been in the job for about 32 days I think if that and it was Andy Murray who had just won Wimbledon uh, starting the defense of his US Open title and he was playing the night session match on the first Wednesday of the championships and it meant that it was overnight in the UK but Martina Navratilova who I had met I'm sure but did not know at all Mm. great champion and somebody who says what she thinks she will call a spade a spade yes and you felt i have really got to be on my metal here i i was ve- i was very nervous before that commentary i settled into it quite quickly and she was um very generous on on that particular occasion i remember the match quite well but boy was i nervous so i think you have to earn these players respect mm. and i think for the large part it works very very well we, we've used some brilliant voices on bbc radio in recent years i mean, pat cash has been with us for many many years it's great having him at wimbledon and at some of the other grand slams as well um kim kleisters justine Enin a few years ago marion bartley such a big part of our team as well um annabelle croft mark woodford these are people who in many cases you get to like a lot mm. and you feel very very comfortable working with them and they all offer you so many different perspectives that's the great thing jeff tarango is our regular at the u.s open love jeff and he'll also be there at Wimbledon because, yeah, he's completely different. We used to use Nick Bolletieri, who doesn't do so much now. But, again, you may not want to hear Nick Bolletieri every single day of the Wimbledon fortnight, but get your fanny up to the baseline, he would say, which is not at all offensive, apparently, in the United States. <laughs> yeah. But his turn of phrase 
just brilliant. Yeah. And people wanted at least a day or two of Bolly when Wimbledon kicked off. So we are we're very lucky. And I actually I find that if some of these players do have egos, which they clearly do, we all do, the overwhelming majority of them park them at the commentary box door. Yeah. It's um it's I think it's radio's a little bit of a leveller in that regard, isn't it? You don't have people running around and perhaps bring you teas and coffees and, and nice lunches and dinners every now and again. True. Not that we completely uh, ignore or treat our summarizers very, very badly, but you know, you've not got makeup people around. It's just very different. Our green room is nothing like as glamorous as the television green room. It's not a chance. It's just a completely life, different you're, environment. You're there no. to do the job. And you're making it up as you go along a lot more. I mean, there's a lot of that in the television coverage. Of course there is when you're doing hours and hours and hours of coverage from Wimbledon. But you have to be a bit more planned and organised in, in television. And once you go on the air, on the, on the radio, the rules are different because you've got the time between the points to fill. Mm. Whereas in television, yes, they've got the time between the points to fill, but you shouldn't be talking over the actual point. Yes. So... You let the pictures talk for themselves and then they come in. So there's a bit more discipline in that regard. And I don't know, I've often wondered whether it's it's easier to be on radio or on television. I think there's actually quite a lot of pressure on the TV commentators who have to come in after an amazing rally and come up with something so deep and philosophical yeah. that captures the moment. Whereas with radio, we are just saying what we can see. Yeah. Or if you're Barry Davis, just a simple, oh, we'll, we'll do very nicely. That often does the trick, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and that is enough for many, many people. But everybody's got to do it a slightly different way. And I think if I were doing some television, that would, that would be on my mind. Goodness me, Russell, you've got to make this one count. Well, has, has, has TV appealed? Has it come knocking? I haven't really had the opportunity since starting as tennis correspondent. The television work I do for the BBC is more on the interview side, mm. um, on screen at times around various news stories. But... I haven't really had the opportunity. It doesn't appeal as much. I think, personally, the radio ball-by-ball commentary is is the biggest buzz you can possibly have, probably, in commentary. Yeah. I I don't think it would be the same. Well, it wouldn't be the same on, on television. I'm not saying I wouldn't maybe want to do it in future, but given that BBC television's events are very much in the summer and at Wimbledon, it would be kind of impossible to do the job I am doing as correspondent, which involves a lot of commentary on Five Live as well as television commentary. So yeah. I think I'm, you know, I'm very, very happy to, uh, to, to leave that to the television side of things. What about the big moments then? Um, I mean, part of, part of my question is in, in the preparation. Um, you, know, you, you know at least going into a, a final, whether it's a, a football World Cup final or, uh, or a tennis World Cup final, you can, you can plot the journey, you can know when a moment is going to arise it's it's pretty uh it's pretty apparent via the nature of a of a championship point that sort of thing so will you will you make sure that you've got the relevant stat on either side of your prep sheet so that you know this is the 17th time she's won or or whatever yeah yeah that that would always be there and i think when we're coming to the end of the match and you can sense who's going to win or maybe you don't know and you've got to do it for both players but you will perhaps ring a couple of stats that now seem to you to be most relevant mm. so that you you know that you don't make any mistake if it is somebody creating history by winning this particular slam for the umpteenth time so i think that's very important i don't script stuff occasionally i might just jot down a couple of words which I think maybe has summed up the match or the moment uh, and ring that as well and Mm. perhaps that will then come into my commentary on the championship point but I've never been a believer in in scripting endings at all I think that can end in in tears you can fall flat on your face very very quickly but yes you do need to be prepared and then try and just go with how you're feeling at the time and you do start to feel a little bit nervous before certain conclusions I did the 
Andy Murray first Wimbledon win, which of course was the big one for the World Service. Uh, Jonathan Overham was commentating for Five Live in the Next Door commentary box. And I can remember feeling very, very nervous because I felt, even though this was for a World Service audience, everybody knew what the story was. I've just got to get this right. Yeah. And then 2016, when Murray beat Milos Raonic, it was different because he was two sets up into a tie break and he took a commanding lead in the tie break. We all knew he was going to win Wimbledon. And so then you don't, you have a chance to think about it. Yeah. And again, you think, well, this is only the second time in 80 years that a British man has won Wimbledon. <laughs> yeah. So I better get this right as well. And it's almost dangerous that you're, you're thinking too much about it because yeah. you know it's about to come. Whereas you have a match that goes into a fifth set tiebreak like it did at Wimbledon last year. You've got no idea what the end result is going to be. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Um, who, are the, uh, who are the sporting voices that, that you've rated over the years? Who, who are those that either you've wanted to emulate or you've you've just thought that's that's a good that's a good way of doing things well i think the ones that i grew up with and remember listening to most fondly and it's the old underneath the bedsheets story with the transistor radio in the early mid 1980s i suppose it was were um, peter jones on the football side and just the way that those programs began on air at eight o'clock those of you who are old enough to remember. So the games had kicked off at 7.45 and there'd be two minutes of news perhaps on Radio 2 and then midweek sports special or whatever it was called would start up. And pretty much the first thing the presenter would say, and in the first 15 minutes, there's been a goal. And they would cue to the commentary and then you'd mm. go live to Peter Jones or whoever it might be. Um, John Inverdale, certainly as a presenter, would have been somebody that I very, very much looked after and, and, and very much fancied his job one day. Mm. And I think the others that I particularly remember from my childhood, um, even though I've, I've dabbled in cricket commentary, but I've not done a great deal, but I've always been a huge cricket fan, was just the, the sound of, of Richie Benno and Jim Laker, yeah. that double act. And I, I had the chance to watch the uh, rerun of the England-West Indies test match at Lords in 1984 that was on BBC Two recently in the lead-up to the series starting in July. And... That was actually the first test match I, I went to, so it had particularly strong personal memories. But just oh, hearing right. Richie and Jim Laker in tandem again was was fabulous. How much of that inspired me or shaped me? It's hard to say. I suppose probably John Inverdale would have had the biggest influence on me as a broadcaster because I saw myself as a presenter and he was the uh, guy I listened to most growing up. Yeah, I, I remember him. He was either covering from Augusta or Wimbledon. I can't quite remember the two, but it was a rainy affair anyway. And he was... He was on on the billing on five live on a on a Friday and he was going to be on air from midday until six o'clock and he filled the full day with lovely chat and bits and pieces and I just mm. I just thought there there is a man who is very comfortable and very good at what he does yeah um, and those open championship programs he used to do along similar lines where yes there was a little bit more action but often on the air between nine and, and seven o'clock and uh, yeah he was pulling the whole thing together as Mark Chapman does now yeah yeah very impressive um, what would you perhaps like to have commentated on that uh, that you've not had the chance to do I think I would love to have done more cricket and there was perhaps a sliding doors moment where I had started to do some cricket commentary I was in India at the start of 2013 covering England's one day tour of India predominantly as a reporter for five live but I did some commentary on the on the final one day international and I'd done a couple of 2020 matches and champions trophy games as well as quite a bit of domestic cricket and that lasted only about 18 months two years that period mm. and the chance to be tennis correspondent came up and absolutely no regrets at, at going for that job at all but it, it sort of meant that 
any chance of developing a career in cricket commentary came to an end. And I think I would love to have been... When I was on centre court at Wimbledon last year, yeah, I was watching the most amazing final between Roger Federer and Novak Djokovic. But I was torn. I wanted to be at Lords, yeah. watching England win the World Cup, either describing England win the World Cup or watching it as well. Um, we turned the comment, we turned the television off in the commentary box because uh, it's far too distracting. Yeah, it mattered too much to me whether England won, so I put it out of my mind. We were getting score updates well every done. now and again, and I, and I concentrated on the final. And how can you complain at being at either of those events? But I think, yes, to have been, to be able to describe an England Ashes win, uh, that World Cup win, that, that's probably one of the things I would, I would love to have had the chance to do. And you never say never, but as you get a little bit older and you become known in a particular sport, and also you don't have the experience that some of the amazing guys that work on TMS have in cricket, it obviously gets harder and perhaps a little bit less likely. Yes, maybe, maybe so. Um, just a couple more then, Russell. Um, what would be a couple couple of pieces of advice you might give to someone looking to become a commentator to 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 either get going or or someone who's in their early years to to improve do it as often as you can and i know that's not so easy i think you do need to do a fair bit of practicing and experimenting from home some people are just natural broadcasters and they may come to it very very easily when they uh when they actually start to do it professionally but i know there is the options are not as great as they as they used to be i mean there's plenty of well i say there's plenty of work it's often unpaid if you're perhaps a writer on websites that's incredibly difficult as well um bbc local radio still has an amazing sports presence in terms of what it covers but the opportunities aren't as great as they were when i was coming through so all that is very very difficult um yeah just just practice as much as you can uh, whether it's at home or perhaps even whether it's going to a cricket match, a football match, whatever it might be, and perhaps even ask a friend if they can sit alongside you and act as a summariser. I think that's mm. yeah, that's crucial because you, we all need a chance to make our mistakes. And you can do it on air up to a certain extent, but it, it's, it's all about miles on the clock. And, and, and don't perhaps be in too much of a hurry to move on too quickly. If you do get that job, if you are commentating for some a local radio station or whatever it might be on your particular sport then I think you think in the early stages of your career oh I want to move on I want to move on to the next challenge but actually to do that for two or three years will will, will do you enormous favours further down the line. I wanted just before I ask you a final question to pick up on on something that you said a little earlier which was um, or you mentioned the curse of modern broadcasting and uh, I think maybe related to to too much public opinion on on things which uh, if if that was what you were referring to is probably something I identify with as to why do we hear so many vox pops from people in the street that are uninformed or non-educated on a particular subject but was that what you meant by that? No, I, I think what I was referring to was that you turn up at a, a venue and um, you've got often so many commitments, you don't have time to find out what the story is, first of all. Now, oh, that, that will okay. be very familiar to news correspondents who perhaps have arrived somewhere and they've got so many different networks that want two ways from them. And they're standing on some rooftop or some nice backdrop. Mm. And actually, they're saying what they know having arrived. But I think we all have this yearning at times to think when you're involved in a really, really big story. I just need a little bit of time to find out a little bit more either by yeah. calling a few people or finding out what's happening on site. Okay, yeah. You, you, you've obviously got you, I mean, the number of Vox Pops then, and of course on the BBC, you, you, you know full well if there are four voices in a Vox Pop that two will have one opinion and two will have the other. Um, yeah, I think it's a bit much for some people, isn't it? Although yeah. the, 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 I think you look at the user-generated content that we've had in the media over the past 20 years and 
there wasn't nearly enough of that initially was there i mean pe- people want their voices represented on air i think it's more it's yeah. not about whether we should be doing it it's it, it, it's how you do it how skillfully and silkily can you do it yeah that's a fair point um in terms of opinion um you know you'll be sat alongside as you said someone like martina navratilova or marion bartoli whoever it might be who obviously has been the athlete and had the experience but how much do you do you validate your own opinion and how much do you feel it's fair for it to come out on air well, I think in a situation when you have um, champions like that, they're giving their opinion and they are being really, really good and strong on that subject, then you are going to be prompting them. You are going to be challenging them. You are going to be playing devil's advocate, perhaps. But there are certainly times where we need to give an opinion. And it's it's sort of quite a nuanced skill to learn that. It worried me in the first couple of years as tennis correspondent how you do this, whereas Laura Kunzberg or Katja Adler would not be asked for an opinion in the jobs that they do. Mm. Uh, we are encouraged as sports correspondents to give an opinion when suitable. There are times, though, when you think, I've got a really strong opinion about this, but actually, if I declare my hand now at the start of what could be a story that bubbles on for weeks and months, then particularly working for the BBC, do I lose my objectivity in the eyes of the audience Mm. or perhaps the readers to the BBC website. So I have not really done much in the way of opinion pieces on the BBC website. We're not after that sort of thing quite as much perhaps as we used to be. We can leave that to the players. But certainly on on the radio, yeah, all the time you will be asked for your your opinion on something. And of course you will present both sides of the argument um, in the way that anybody really not just somebody who works for the BBC should be doing mm. but yeah there are times where you can absolutely come down and um, give your take on it and I and I enjoy that freedom yeah and and in commentary I mean would you obviously I, I appreciate what you say if you've got if you've got the benefit of that experience alongside you then then that's that's to be absolutely used and promoted and but would there ever be a moment where I don't know? Maybe it's to do with the the behaviour of a player on court, as an example. And would you would you ever have a view on on that and say, look, that this this isn't on, is it? Or you know, they're mm. they're, they're losing respect here, or, or that sort of thing. Yes. I guess I guess it's sort of it, it could be part opinion, but I guess it's also you're still doing a, a part observation, maybe. Yeah, and it's judgment, and absolutely in that situation, I I would I, I'd be less comfortable in criticising a player's backhand. Yeah, because I don't really feel technically in a position to do that, especially when you've got someone like Pat Cash sitting alongside you. <laughs> but yeah, player behaviour, really good example. And there have been times where that's been the main story in town. I was allowed to have an opinion on what happened with Serena Williams at the US Open 18 months ago in that final against Naomi Osaka. I have criticised Andy Murray's behaviour and demeanour on court at times. And I've criticised his regular use of swear words within earshot of microphones. Mm. And I would perhaps say that as a parent of young children at the time. And even now, the children aren't of such an age where I would particularly want them to hear that. So I think you feel comfortable there. But I I wouldn't certainly criticise a player for not winning a match. Mm. If you feel they're not trying, Nick Kyrgios springs to mind, then that is something you need to say. But a player is often giving absolutely everything. Uh, They lose a match. They fail to defend their title. Then I don't think that's my position to hammer them for that because I'm sure they were giving absolutely everything in their best attempt not to lose that match. Yeah. Um, 
the final day comes then, um, as uh, as is my uh, tradition on Q Commentator, where uh, where you're approaching your last match, whenever that may be, Russell, um, your last gig, um, and it could be a week, it could be a weekend, it could be a tournament, a single match. What would be uh, the sort of job that you would be happy to call your last? I suppose you want to go out at Wimbledon, don't you? I, I love all the Grand Slams. I, I, I really do, because they are all so unique. I... We love Melbourne at the start of the year because it's Melbourne in January and the weather's a little bit warmer. I love the clay court tennis and Paris and Roland Garros and, and the US Open. If you're picking a stadium mm. to go out in, if that was full of 23,500 people and you're watching a five-set classic in the men's final, then that would be unbeatable too. But you know, Wimbledon is home. Those sounds are quite unique. And I think that would seem to be a, a, a very good way to go out. Whether I can do it as skillfully as Jonathan Overend did, I don't know. Because, of course, the last match he commentated on was Andy Murray being the first British male singles winner of Wimbledon for 77 years. Now, that is what I call timing. Yes, that is pretty good timing, isn't it? Um, well, listen, Russell, um, I, think, uh, I think your voice is already synonymous with uh, an awful lot of brilliant moments in sport um, and, and across tennis as well. And, um, you know, I think we're, we're all grateful that you, that you did fight your way through the rain on that morning in Exeter. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I think... If I just had one more pint of Snakebite and Black the previous <laughs> night, history may have been different. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no to that shot no um and you know i think i think your level headedness which which certainly comes through in our conversation but actually you know i think is is a real asset of yours in 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 the way that you you seem to have a pretty cool and calm and, and eagle-eyed view of of what the right detail is in a story or or in a match and i i think you know it, it it's a lovely skill to have as a commentator to to and and you know as a when I've been an audience listener listening in to know that I'm not missing anything because the right person's looking at the right stuff. And I think that's, that's very much to your credits. It's been brilliant to talk to you. Um, thank you so much for, for making the time. Well, thank you, Nick. It's nice to hear that. And it's, um, yeah, it's been interesting. I don't quite feel like I've been on the, the couch for the last <laughs> hour or so, but in a sense, you've made, you've asked questions that have made me think about the way I perceive myself, which I haven't really thought about in the past. You can, you have an idea, a very good idea of what makes me tick and you can be honest about what you're like as a person, but actually how that comes across to people mm. is, is something I hadn't really thought too much about. So I really enjoyed it. No, well, I'm, I'm glad to have done that. Um, I think Nick Mullins had a similar experience. So uh, I'll pop the invoice in the post. <laughs> and they're not cheap, are they, your rates? <laughs> Excellent. Increasing all the time. Russell, thank you very much indeed. Cheers, Nick. If you're a fan of a dry sense of humour, then there was definitely a keen sense of that from Russell, wasn't there? Uh, I can imagine him as a fine dinner guest alongside someone incredibly irritating uh, who was just humouring for his own sport. Uh, really enjoyed chatting. Uh, Russell, thanks again for your time. So many bits in that one to savour, including the detail on calling those rallies and knowing when to break off. Uh, really interesting uh, about switching the pace of the commentary and also working with summarisers and getting nervous when your next one is a huge legend of the game in someone like Martina Navratilova. How magic having to bring your A-game. Mm. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that. Please do leave an iTunes review if you can. It means an awful lot. And uh, if you're on Twitter, do share your highlights and what resonated with you uh, at Q Commentator or at Nick Heath Sports. I'll be back with the next episode very soon. We're heading to the Athletics Stadium. Uh, take care. Thanks for listening. And bye for now.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 